The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Yourself? Doing well, Father. Good. I am uh, enjoying this St. Patrick's Day, so I'd like to wish you a very, very happy, very blessed St. Patrick's Day. Well, faith be going, I wish you the same. Yeah, sounds good. Father, could you... Uh, St. Patrick's Day to you and all our viewers. Yeah, definitely. Could you perhaps uh, say a few words on, on St. Patrick, Father? Well, it'd be hard to say a few words. Uh, there's so much that could be said, but I am a man of few words, as you know. So, <laughs> Something like that. Uh, well, first of all, he's a saint. <laughs> yeah, it tells you. Uh, the, the great faith and hope and love in our Lord. Um, he was not an Irishman by birth, uh, but uh, was brought to Ireland by slave holders, by slave traders, actually, and bought and put to work tending sheep there as a slave. And uh, he uh, escaped after some years with the intention of coming back and bringing the faith. So he actually went to Rome, was ordained a priest, and uh, would be consecrated a bishop. He uh, was a, the great missionary, as you know, to the Irish. And um, here's a man who confronted idolatry under all forms. Um, he was a man who confronted idolatry with great boldness, okay? and uh, neither the wrath of the devil or the wrath of the devil's uh, partisans here on earth, his human partisans, deterred him ever in any way, from the slightest way, from, uh, from uh, making war on idol worship. Okay, so uh, he certainly would have not tolerated what went on in the Vatican during this synod on the Amazon. Not at all. He, he would not have flinched, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, but the man also um, uh, was mo motivated not by uh, you know, any malice toward anyone, uh, but a love for God, a zeal for the house of God, a zeal for the name of God. And so he himself would undertake great penances. Uh, he took upon himself as it were, the sufferings uh, needed to obtain the graces necessary for the conversion of the Irish people. And so the transformation that came over the Emerald Isle uh, in his lifetime was absolutely phenomenal. Um, that um, con con conversions were amazing, and they were genuine conversions. They were not, uh, they were not simply... Um, uh, just emotional outbursts that, like altar calls that lasted, you know, a week or, or less. But they, these were genuine conversions. And one reads of all the penances he did, which these days I think most people, uh, would, um, look down upon and say, well, that's ridiculous. You know, you shouldn't do that. That's absurd. But here he was, uh, really expending himself in a sense, trying to draw upon himself 
um, the sufferings of his Christ, uh, of his our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and sharing them with our Lord, and, and fulfilling what Saint Paul said, making up in himself what is quote lacking in the sufferings of Christ, and that is to say, our share. We have a share in the sufferings of Christ, and he understood that. Saint Patrick did. So when you read the story of his life, it was a life of enormous mortification and self-denial coupled with a life of enormous activity and dynamism and uh, just the the force of his faith was so uh, so <laughs> powerful I mean mm-hmm. it, it just uh, it's as though he, he mowed down the forces of hell before him or God mowed them down you know? so uh, we need him <clears throat> we certainly need him and to think of what has come, uh, what has become of Ireland now, uh, in the face of the modern day devils, human and not, uh, it's just horrible to think. And, uh, I'm sure that St. Patrick still loves the Irish people and that he is, well, uh, I, I know he's fighting in heaven for, uh, fighting not, you know, in heaven, he's fighting from heaven, I should say, for them. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> still against these same forces of evil, mm-hmm. yeah, knowing that uh, that God will prevail there. And I'm sure even though there are as much evil being done in Ireland now, there must also be great saints in the making there too. Sure. Father, I, I know we talk a lot on the show about the diabolical disorientation that Our Lady of, Our Lady of Fatima spoke of, and I would say that that certainly applies to the way that St. Patrick's Day is celebrated, uh, at least, mm. well, I guess all over the world today. But um, how should a, a real traditional Catholic celebrate St. Patrick's Day? What, what should we do to, to honor him? Well, it's a very, very good question. I mean, uh, in the recent past, we have, uh, well, I shouldn't say we, uh, hopefully not you and not I, but uh, so many of the people, you know, in the name of honoring St. Patrick's Day have dishonored St. Patrick by doing everything that he himself condemned, uh, the drinking and the carousing and uh, the revelry and all the things that St. Paul speaks against in the epistles, uh, that that all has become a hallmark of St. Patrick's Day. And um, uh, certainly this is, well, if, if imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, then uh, this not only is not flattering to St. Patrick, having all of the ribald revelry, uh, revelry uh, going on in his name, but it would be a great offense to him too. And uh, I, I was thinking earlier today that certainly the displays of worldliness and indulgence, self-indulgence that have um, marked St. Patrick's Day for the last 10, 20, 50 years, whatever it's been, um, could in, in, in themselves have brought down upon, upon the world and even upon the Irish uh, the wrath of St. Patrick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, our Lord knotted the cords and went and drove the money changers out of the temple as they turned the house of God into a den of thieves when it was, should have been a, a house of prayer and what should have been done, I would think, during the day in honor of St. Patrick would be follow his excellent example. 
to manifest the faith, to pronounce the faith, to uh, renew one's allegiance to the Catholic faith, the true Catholic faith. But uh, things uh, went the other direction. And I, I'm sure the Novus Ordo, the new order, <clears throat> had a lot to do with bringing that about and intensifying that worldliness. That's what modernism is all about. It's, it is quintessential worldliness. It's all about this world. You see that in the Vatican right now. Uh, the, the obsession is with the world. Reminds us of our Lord's rebuke to Peter, right? Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art a scandal to me. For thou mindest not the things of man, not the things of God, but the things of man, right? Mm -hmm. And so, unfortunately, St. Patrick's Day had become emblematic of that malady or that scandal. <clears throat> so, um, all we can do um, to honor St. Patrick really is do what Catholics always should have done, and that is try to practice his virtues. Uh, to an eminent degree on his day, and honor him that way. So, anyway, uh, I'm trying to be brief. <laughs> okay, <laughs> well, I'm characteristically brief. Well, Father, let's uh, let's change gears. You know, the big topic in the news, obviously, is still the the coronavirus and the effects of that that is having on, on society. And uh, I know there's a lot of concern from our our viewers and. Uh, Catholics worldwide about the the possibility of some kind of government order, um, you know, banning all, all religious services, um, preventing us from from saying mass. Um, do you expect anything, any kind of order like that, to come down anytime soon, Father? And if something like that did, um, to what extent would would you? To what extent should Catholics conform to that? Uh, we had a, a viewer write in and, and ask. Um, when does the church have to conform to civil law? Are there certain uh, things that the church should uh, be looking for to, con to conform to civil law? And um, is there any kind of certain parameters that we should be looking for where we, uh, we do not have to conform to civil law? What is your, uh, your take on all of that? Well, this is a good feast day to talk about that too. Yeah. Uh, St. Patrick arrived in pagan lands and he did not acknowledge any pagan law that was built on pagan belief, right? Um, and um, he employed mortification, prayer, prayer, continual prayer, and um, also uh, very bold statements of faith, right? That's what we need to do in the world today. We have to have that mortification. We have to pray, especially the rosary. And, uh, and when we pray the rosary, we are uniting our prayers with the prayers of the Blessed Mother. And when we pray at the Holy Mass, the true Mass, the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, we are uniting our prayers with the prayers of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross as he besought the Father for mercy for us. And so those two prayers in particular go together, and we must... Uh, you know, our, our, the, we must give pride of place to those prayers, preeminence, I should say, in our lives. And of course, we have to be very bold in pronouncing our faith and not be shy and uh, timid about it, as though we're ashamed of it. These are the three things we need to do. So here we are in the midst of a pandemic, right? And uh, government is imposing more and more um, 
control of our lives. <clears throat> does government have that right? Yes, in certain ways. Yes, it does. Okay. Um, because um, the, the government is charged with the public welfare. And um, now, can that be abused? Of course. You know, any power can be abused. Um, could it be abused to the point of contradicting God's law? Definitely. I mean, we see governments, in, you know, uh, uh, promoting abortion and all other matters of perversions and evil, evil things, protecting them, promoting them by their policies and even preventing anyone from, uh, from resisting or even protesting against them. So, yes, that power can certainly be abused. <clears throat> Could the power be abused in trying to prevent the holy sacrifice of the mass from being offered? Yes. I mean, totalitarian governments, being totalitarian, mean they want to possess the complete control over the body and the soul of their citizens. Um, and so they have inevitably tried to stop the mass uh, because the mass calls upon the human soul uh, to acknowledge the sovereignty of God and his dominion, as opposed to man's dominion. Um, what would happen in a case like this, though? I mean, if <clears throat> here you have a contagion that is, in fact, very um, contagious, right? Uh, spreads very easily, very rapidly from one person to another. Um, here we have a contagion that can be very deadly to a certain segment of the population, those who are elderly or otherwise whose immune systems are, immune are compromised, right, uh, could die of this. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's an awful way to die. I mean, you're just uh, basically you're smothered to death from the inside, you know. Um, I understand that the pneumonia that this brings about paralyzes the cilia, the lungs, so what person cannot cough out or expel what is filling the lungs, and the person just drowns. <laughs> it's a terrible thing. But um, if, they, if they say, well, any gatherings, as they have been saying, at first in Ohio, 100 people or more, right? Mm -hmm. Then it became 50 people or more. Then it, President Trump spoke uh, the other day, and he said 10 people or more. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's getting to the point where large families, you know, have to disassociate from each other, <laughs> I guess. Um, so, um, but we get the point. I mean, uh, you know, I, we get the point. The idea is to practice social <clears throat> distancing. No. Well, a number of doctors whom I trust have told me that actually is part of an overall effective plan. Uh, that proximity does put one at risk. And we can see that. That is actually common sense. I understand that. But should, when, to what extent would it have to get to be a danger before one would be able to uh, impose a, a, an edict, a law, a decree, whatever, that would be uh, enforceable by law, punishable by law, <clears throat> for people to gather in church to, to worship God at the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass? Well, somebody texted me earlier today and said if the governors of these various states were to um, order that Catholics could not attend the, the sacrifice of the Mass, 
would we be obliged to obey that? And I think the question um, might, we might want to rephrase that a bit. Under what circumstances might we be obliged, even as Catholics, regardless of the civil law, true or false, <clears throat> to prevent Catholics from attending the Mass? Under what circumstances would Catholics be not only not obliged to attend the Mass, even on a Sunday or Holy Day, under what circumstances would Catholics even be obliged not to attend the Mass? <clears throat> are there circumstances? And the answer is yes, there are. And we know that. Uh, a mother of uh, children has hardly, um, you know, raised a two or three or four-year-old who hasn't experienced that when the child is ill, it's the mother's obligation to care for the child, and that uh, would be wrong. It would actually be sinful to endanger others by bringing the sick child to the church and put others at risk. And uh, uh, also the mother herself, who may not be ill, but she has a moral obligation to take care of that child, and that is a prior obligation, and therefore a higher obligation than the ecclesiastical law to attend the Mass on Sunday. And so, could a mother um, commit a sin by going to Mass on Sunday? And the answer is she could be, if she is, um, let's say, neglecting a, a, a more serious obligation that she has um, by abandoning a child who needs her mm -hmm. for his own welfare, or um, uh, bringing a contagion, a contagion into the church which would uh, put others at risk. So um, that would make it not only morally uh, permissible for her to miss the Mass, it might make it morally uh, necessary for her to do so. So there are circumstances in which one could legitimately miss Mass on Sunday at Holy Day, according to the ecclesiastical law, that is. Uh, we know that too. Uh, we're, we're told these days as traditional Catholics, that we have to travel, travel an hour or more. Some moral theologians speculated even had 45 minutes or more uh, to get to Mass, uh, let's say one way, right, one direction to get to attend Mass, that we would not we have an obligation, at least certainly not to pain of mortal sin, they would say, um, to attend the Mass. But this is according to ecclesiastical law. Ecclesiastical law is human law. Human law always admits of exceptions <clears throat> because no human law can provide for all possible circumstances. But there's also divine law. <clears throat> and in this case, divine law requires us to worship God. And require law, uh, divine law requires us to do whatever is necessary and even make extraordinary sacrifice to do the things that are necessary to save our souls. And that's the ultimate objective. That's the supreme command, right? It's the supreme purpose of the church. It's the very reason for which Christ came to earth in the first place as man and died on the cross for us. So we have to do the things that are necessary to save our souls. So one might be quite a distance away. One might be five hours drive away from, the, from any true traditional mass. You could say, well, you know, I'm not obliged to ever attend mass at this rate. But uh, the fact is the salvation of his soul is hanging in the balance there, and especially if he has children and he wants to raise them in the faith. It's not as easy as saying that, well, I don't have to travel more than 45 minutes or an hour one way to get to Mass. 
because again, the salvation of the souls depends upon at least making that extraordinary effort at times, right? Mm -hmm. So that could impose an obligation to make that drive once a month or if not for one's own soul to get to confession, if one is a habit of mortal sin, to receive our Lord in Holy Communion, to receive the strength necessary to uh, remain chaste or honest or whatever the battle they're fighting, <clears throat> to stay in the state of grace, or to expose the children to the practice of the faith, to make sure the children themselves are, are raised in such a way that not only can they be baptized, they can receive a Catholic education, they can receive a First Holy Communion and receive the other sacraments they need to be Catholics. So to be faithful Catholics in this world. <clears throat> so that goes beyond the practice of mere ecclesiastical law. That's what is required by God for the salvation of one's soul. But in this case, uh, for example, if, if, a, if a state were to say, if the governor of a state were to say, well, I'm imposing this, that uh, absolutely mandatory, one cannot have gatherings of more than 10 people in one place, um, that would seem to preclude uh, by far most of the <clears throat> traditional Catholic people yeah. from attending the traditional <laughs> Mass on a Sunday. Uh, would that be something that a Catholic must morally obey? And I would say a Catholic must obey that morally, not because the government governor is commanding it, <clears throat> but because it is true. We acknowledge the truth of that judgment that attending there would put people at risk. <clears throat> and, um, and it could put people at risk in, in a number of ways. For example, a father who, whose uh, liberty is necessary to care for his family, a mother whose liberty is necessary to care for her children, uh, could be endangering, uh, they could be endangering themselves and their ability to care for their children if they're going to be put into quarantine because they went to Mass and later on somebody who was there with them at Mass was found to be positive, tested positive for the coronavirus, and so the <clears throat> the police and the National Guard are, are trying to round up anybody who, <laughs> who, um, who was present at that liturgy, you know, and um, they're asking. Maybe, maybe they're they're asking uh, the coronavirus person, you know, who has the coronavirus. Well, who was who was in the pew with you, or who was around you? Who did you talk to while you were there? And they innocently, uh, they, you know, mentioned, well, I, I talked to these various people, so, yeah, you ought to test them to make sure they're okay. But then, you know, the police go knocking on their door and say, you were exposed to coronavirus, come with me. <clears throat> and so a mother or father whose obligation is to take care of a child would be in a, a serious quandary as to say, should I, what if this is a real danger? <clears throat> would that not constitute a reason why I would be morally obliged not to be there and not to put myself in that danger to be taken away from my children <clears throat> is the obligation to attend that particular Mass on that particular Sunday so paramount? <clears throat> and the answer would be, I don't believe so. I don't, I, 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 we see the Church herself has expressed her mind as to what would constitute a justification for someone staying away. And um, again, I mean, it's not necessarily because of the governor's, the force of the governor's order in itself, um, but because he's making a judgment mm -hmm. that this is putting people at risk of catching this disease. 
And we actually need everyone to quarantine for a certain length of time to contain this for the good of all. Um, and that is, according to the medical people I'm talking to, that is not really an, uh, an outrageous claim. Do you expect any order like that to come down anytime soon? Well, it does concern me because the Novus Ordo, I mean, these Novus Ordo bishops, even Francis himself, right, yeah. <clears throat> was willing to actually <clears throat> shut the churches, lock the doors, lock the faithful out, right? Um, anticipating any order of any government, right? He just was willing to do this. Um, should this be surprising? I mean, why would he do that? Um, and then open the churches, right? But not allow anybody to attend their liturgies. As I mentioned last week, I think that tells you what he really thinks of the value of the Novus Ordo liturgy. Right? But, uh, you know, Tom, if you go back to St. Pius X's encyclical Pascendi on modernism, and you read that encyclical condemning the errors of the modernists, he wrote it in 1907, as you know, and he describes the modernists to a T, and one of the things he points out as a hallmark of a modernist <clears throat> is this obeisance he pays to the civil authority how he gives the civil authority the, the power to dictate to the church how the church can practice the faith. And as soon as I heard about Francis shutting down the churches uh, of Rome and the, the other, you know, the bishops of the Novus Ordo throughout, uh, you know, decreeing, following suit, and in this country now, and throughout Ohio now, right, also, I couldn't help but think about what St. Pius X wrote in that encyclical, that is a characteristic of the modernist, they exalt the power of the civil authority over the church and how the, how the faith is allowed to be practiced. Read it. I mean, uh, anybody who doubts that, who doesn't see that uh, as a, a clear manifestation, another one of many, many manifestations of Francis being the apotheosis, of the living embodiment of modernism, they should go and read that. And what's, so what St. Pius X says about that. So... Um, Here's the problem, okay? If a, if a governor here in the United States of America, if a governor of any one of our states was thinking, well, let's just do this, okay? In America, we, we recognize the freedom of the practice of religion, and that's a sacred principle in our Constitution. And uh, it's in the makeup of American people, right? It's something very dear to them. They will not take it lightly. And uh, I want to shut down gatherings in all these churches, but I don't dare because there will be a very, very negative reaction among the people. And they might say, okay, we'll give up our bowling and we'll give up our restaurants and we'll give up our bars and we'll give up, you know, our whatever, whatever else we're doing. Um, but we're not going to give that up. You can see that in the American people. They say, we're not going to give that up. It's a matter of principle. We're not going to do that. And then what happens next is the Novus Ordo bishops, in the name of all the Catholic people, mothball the churches and just gratuitously say, we're going to shut down all 
the worship in our churches and not allow our people to attend any of these services all the way through Holy Week and Easter. Well, this governor could easily say, well, that was my main source of opposition right there. And my goodness, if these, if these Nova Soto bishops or these Catholic bishops have taken it upon themselves to do that, they've just cleared the way for me. Because now there's very little opposition that would really mean anything to me. Um, so I could just even point to them as the example of, of leading the way in their civic duty, you know. And um, this, is the, this is the way they would kind of kowtow to a kind of despotism. Again, read the encyclical Bashendi by St. Pius X. You see the groundwork has already been laid for that. Mm -hmm. And the example has already been set by Francis for that, right? So um, the point here for us, though, would be that the true, the true Mass would still go on, but it would be behind closed doors. <clears throat> and the people would be denied access to the Blessed Sacrament, the true Blessed Sacrament. Um, now, I don't know if they're doing here what Francis did, saying, okay, they, he backtracked and said, I'm going to leave the doors open to the churches if you can come and pray. I just don't want to be present while any of the liturgy is being said, which really doesn't make any sense. Um, <clears throat> nonetheless, you probably saw some uh, videos of uh, Italian police breaking up groups of people who were kneeling outside the doors of the church while they were opened <clears throat> and peering through the open door as some um, Nova Soto uh, clergyman was, was in the, engaged at the table in, in saying the new mass. And the, the Italian police came along and ran them off, basically. <clears throat> but how could anyone object to that because their own bishop set them up for this? Um, so what, I, what would I do in a case like that? Well, I, I guess, you know, I, if I saw that as a manifest overreach with no justification at all, but simply a, an overreach of power to shut down the Catholic faithful's access to the true sacraments, to our Lord. There's no doubt about it. I would, I would not allow it. I would not submit to that in any way. I would consider it to be a, an obligation conscience to uh, stand up against that. But at the same time, I'd have to realize if I'm putting the people at risk over that, and they have obligations to provide for their families and so on, I would think I would have to tell them that they would not be obligated to be there, each and every single one of them, to stand with me on that, because they do have other obligations to fulfill before God, right? which might be jeopardized by them. I personally would feel obliged to uh, make that available, the Holy Mass available to any Catholic who would say, this is where I would be and this is where I'm going to be at the foot of the altar, at the foot of Calvary. Um, in the face of this particular problem, though, on the basis of the information I'm getting from, as I say, the medical people I've heard, I'd really have to, really have to consider whether or not uh, there, there is truly a, a, a reason for this quarantine. There really is. And uh, it is truly an effective means as a, well, I, you know, of slowing it, it's not stopping it. Right. But apparently, as far as I can tell right now, anyway, uh, it's a judgment call, but it seems to be um, 
a, a good faith effort to stop the spread of this, of this virus. See, the, you know, one of the things we have to realize about this is, I've voiced this before, and people I know, doctors and nurses have told me it's correct, okay? And so for me, it was just a best guess, <clears throat> interpretation of what happens here. But they told me that's exactly what the point is. <clears throat> and that is that um, they say the initial onset of this virus is asymptomatic, that people don't show symptoms for quite some time. How long? I don't know. But it could be a week, it could be two weeks. But then of that group who are actually now carrying the virus, some of them are going to show, showing, start showing symptoms. And then, uh, and those will be mild symptoms. And they'll maybe try to treat it with cough drops or whatever, throat lozenges. But then of that group, some of them will begin showing more uh, moderate symptoms. And then that group will go to the doctor and look for some sort of uh, medical remedy. And of that group, some of those will then go on to acute symptoms, okay? <clears throat> and uh, they're the ones who will be in danger, and then they're the ones who will wind up looking for hospitalization, ventilators, and all the rest. And it just so happens that there are so many that come down with these the moderate and the acute symptoms at the same time. That's what's flooding the system. <clears throat> and the very fact that you have this virus out there that is in people who are not showing symptoms, it gives them all that time to actually spread the microbe to others. So they're actually carrying it and they're c communicating it to others and no one knows that this is going on until the symptoms begin to show. And, uh, but people, again, aren't going to necessarily look for medical help until they've got at least moderate symptoms that are something that just they don't seem to be able to treat, you know, with over-the-counter remedies and so on. And that's when uh, it, it seems to happen all at once that you all of a sudden have this wave of, of, of people who are very ill all at once. And our medical system, our hospitals, don't have the ventilators, they don't have the beds, they don't have the medical personnel all at, on hand to, uh, to handle like a, a, like a tidal wave that arrives all at once. Mm -hmm. And this is the thing. So that's why they call flattening the curve. They're trying to spray, spread it out so they can accommodate the people, treat them, and then get them over it. Well, as more people arrive, they can clear beds, they can clear ventilators, and they can uh, treat them, the people who come anew. And uh, this is, seems to be the real issue they're trying to deal with now. How do, we, how do we spread this out? It might prolong it a bit, but at least uh, we can keep up with it. <clears throat> this is the problem they're having in northern Italy now. They're, they're just drowning in this problem right now. And uh, <clears throat> with a lack of hospital beds, lack of ventilators, lack of pro medical personnel, lack of virtually everything. Um, and that, that assures that the disease is going to spread and spread and spread, you know, then it's almost impossible to contain it under those circumstances. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, I can see that. It makes sense, mm -hmm. the, the arguments like that. They say this is a novel virus. It's like, not like anything they've seen before in many ways. And, uh, which makes it highly suspicious. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I leave that to the medical people to determine how suspicious. Mm. In any case, uh, 
Is it a scourge of God? I would say yes, definitely, because of the sins of mankind. All you have to do is look around our society and see what we're doing. And the perversions that we're uh, almost celebrating, right? And you see that uh, it is not surprising to think that God would say enough. As I say, the only surprise is that he didn't say enough yeah. in 1973, <laughs> or, you know. Um, so... In any case, um, you know, I, I would, I would uh, actually have to say under the circumstances that I think there's probably a, at least a benefit of a doubt to the go a governor who would come out and say, look, I, I think we really need to do this. And um, what, one of the things we've done here at Immaculate Conception is to begin live streaming the Mass. You had a lot to do with that. Mm -hmm. So that people have access, uh, at least remotely, and so that in spirit, they could attend the Mass and could make a spiritual communion if they had to. And no other way to receive. Mm -hmm. uh, even as I would not turn away anyone, any worthy soul who came to receive. Uh, or even 10, or even 12, or <laughs> even 20 people who came to receive. Look, insofar as we could comply with the law, we will. Insofar as we can in conscience comply with the law, we will. And so the question really comes down to not are we morally obliged to follow the law or an edict, let's say, from the governor. Um, ordinarily, we would be obliged to follow the edict of legitimate authority, a legitimate command from a legitimate authority that doesn't contravene the law of God. Would there be a moral obligation to obey such a law? Yes, there would be. Okay. Um, some laws are civil laws, purely and simply. <clears throat> For example, the speed limits on the highway. Are we morally obliged to obey that speed limit? So that if we uh, go over 70 miles an hour on an interstate highway, we're committing a mortal sin, or a venial sin. No, but the church has told us if we're breaking the civil law, we have to be willing to accept the civil penalties. <laughs> okay? <clears throat> um, but if there's a, a, a speed limit on the highway saying the speed limit is 70 miles an hour, you could commit a mortal sin by driving 50 miles an hour in a driving rainstorm, in a heavy fog, realizing I don't have control over this car. I could kill myself or I could kill somebody very easily because I can't see where I'm going. And someone who realizes he's putting others at risk like that I mean, he takes a certain moral responsibility himself. He's not technically breaking the civil civil law, at least not the posted speed limit. But, uh, you know, God's law has a much farther reach than mere civil law. So, um, God's law, the divine, the divine law and the commandments, doesn't know of exceptions, <laughs> okay? Um, man's law does, God's law does not. Mm -hmm. It's actually divine law. It's applicable everywhere, always. And um, so, in any case, but I, I think um, the, the question really would come down to whether um, it is really necessary for the, uh, uh, for the, for the common good in our mm -hmm. society to comply with the law like that for a week or two. Yes, of course, if there was any effort to bar the faithful from having any access to the Mass and the Sacraments. Again, there's 
that, that's totally out of the question. You know, we mm -hmm. lay down our lives rather than submit to anything like that. Mm -hmm. But there are circumstances, definitely, under which a Catholic can legitimately miss Mass and which a Catholic should morally, is morally obliged to do so because of higher obligations. This could constitute one of those. Yeah. Father, you, you mentioned the, the live stream. I think perhaps it may be a bit providential that we, uh, this is some, a, a project we've been working on for many months. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's truly been a, a team effort, but uh, I think we we have have finally at last got this uh, up and running. I think we've mm -hmm. we've worked all of all of the bugs out, and it, it seems to be just in time for this um, that this pandemic that's that's been going on. And mm -hmm. um, I think that uh, that this could be a great tool for a, a lot of people who. Uh, I think I already noticed at, at mass on on Sunday that that the pews were rather sparse, and um, I think that this this trend might might continue. You know, and if something like this does happen, the situation that we've been talking about, where they would issue some kind of order, mm -hmm. um, that that this live stream tool could be a, a great help for those. You know, we we post the the daily mass readings on the website as well every day, so mm -hmm. a, any any one of our viewers will be able to actually watch the mass happening live and follow the prayers at the same time and. Well, obviously, this isn't the same as, as actually being there in person. Like you said, they could, you know, be there in spirit, praying the same prayers with the priest. They could make a spiritual communion. And I think this is probably the next best possible thing that, that one could do. So um, if anyone does want, want to watch that live streaming, it's just you can go to our website, wcbohio.com. The, uh, the mass videos will be posted at the top. There's a, a direct link to that, wcbohio.com slash live stream. Mm -hmm. Where they can see all all of the archived videos. So they can actually the watch the mass in progress. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But then also uh, they can also access the recording of the mass. Yes. It remains on the. Yes, Father. Um, yes. So so that's good. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, very beautiful church. Very grateful for that. Mm -hmm. And we'd encourage people, um, even if they are able to attend the, the true mass on Sundays, yeah. to uh, revisit that during the week. Yes. As well. For example, I know you live streamed the masses this morning at seven yes. and at eight a.m. Yes, right. St. Patrick's Day. Yes. Although well, not many people were aware of this, <laughs> uh, were forewarned. But those are, those are available right now. Yes, right. We watched, right? Yes, right. And um, I'm, I thank you very much, Tom, for the work you did. I know you worked hard on that over a long period of time uh, to make this happen. So uh, one should go to w, uh, WCB. Ohio.com mm -hmm. and look for the, um, well, what to click on to, to see the mass mm -hmm. itself. That's, that's a great thing. Mm -hmm. um, so I think if you saw some empty places in the pews on Sunday, it was probably older people. Mm -hmm. um, and younger as well. And younger people too, yeah. When you're younger children. Yes. Yeah, so. no doubt. Well, we, we told people, we told the older people who, let's face it, are, are more, we look at this, the, the progress of this, we find that the older people are the most susceptible to infection and the least treatable. And so I think there's no doubt they would have a moral, well, if not a moral obligation to stay with, a moral right to do so, because there, there's a certain danger and fear of infection there, especially if they feel weakened already. You know. But... Um, with the children, we told them, if you have a child who's ill, don't bring the child. Right. Which is common sense. You know? Don't bring the child to Mass if the child is contagious uh, so uh, and threatens the health of other people. Um, so that might have also had that effect. Mm -hmm. 
No, I, I know uh, some doctors talked about removing the holy water fonts. <clears throat> and uh, I, I personally would have to say I, I would not have done that, okay? Uh, I would not have removed the holy water fonts. But I understand that there, there are some uh, traditional priests who actually use the expedience of uh, using spray bottles, filling them with holy water, <laughs> and positioning people at the doors so that when people arrive, they put their hand out, and they got a spray of holy water, right? Individual dosage of holy water, so that you didn't have all the people reaching into the font together, right? Now, you know, there are some people who would immediately react against that and think this is absurd, or this is, uh, I don't know what they would say. Something you see in the Novus Ordo. Something you might see in the Novus Ordo. But the fact is, I actually saw a traditional priest use that a spray bottle, atomizing the holy water during the exorcism of a place. And I had the same reaction. I thought, well, that's kind of novel. <laughs> and it seems very um, modern, not to say modernist. But at the same time, why? I mean, what's wrong with that? I mean, we can sprinkle it, right? Mm -hmm. The water with an aspergium, aspergillium, and um, at the asparagus. And um, why would using this device be, does it, did it take anything at all away from the holy water? No, it doesn't. So I wouldn't even be adverse to that, you know, yeah. uh, to um, using that and giving people their individual dose of the holy water. But what I would encourage the people to do rather is to bring little bottles uh, with them and to take their own holy water and have it home. I mean, they should have it there anyway. Every traditional Catholic should have a container of holy water at home. And I think anyone who doesn't is overlooking something very important uh, in their Catholic life to have that sacramental at home for the, their use, the, their, their family's use. So um, I, I, I just blessed uh, a good supply of holy water to be used for that purpose. I can't supply enough bottles for everybody in the congregation, of course. But I'm going to be encouraging them to bring their own bottles and actually uh, do what they should have been doing all the time. And that is uh, having on their person or in their cars or in their places of work, uh, wherever, you know, wherever they go, to have a good supply of holy water with them and to use it. Okay. So if you, if you uh, approach the door for Sunday Mass and somebody says, stick out your hand, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you you can go ahead to the holy water font and take the font, the okay. holy water yourself, certainly. <laughs> Sounds good. But for those who uh, again are are nervous about that, well, I don't want them to just abstain from using holy water altogether. So I'd still like them to have access to it. Okay. Cool. Father, anything else? I like draw to... the line at squirt guns, though. Okay. Okay. <laughs> no, 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 no squirt guns. Okay. No, no, absolutely not. Uh, I can see the nervous sort of. Yeah. Uh, thinking that was a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> it's not. Uh, and any other ideas that people have would be would be good to know. Okay. I mean, the world has been through many, many plagues. The Catholic people have been through many, many plagues yes. before, too. Yep. You know, here we are in the midst of this pandemic here, and we're also in the midst of Lent. And I can't help but think that uh, this <clears throat> pandemic, as they've labeled it, with all of the 
Well, anxieties, even trauma. I mean, some people are showing signs of trauma uh, with its um, inconveniences, with its troubles and its trials. I, I see people reacting to that, but in a way that is totally disassociated from Lent. And I think people need to make a connection there. I mean, not that a pandemic necessarily has anything to do with Lent, but I think if we really understood Lent for what it means, we could draw the connection and say, well, this is what God is asking of me now. This is what God, I mean, I'm here, and, and I can say, I think this pathogen was uh, created in a laboratory to attack mankind and to take not only away uh, the lives of our elderly, to terrorize us into submitting to tyranny, I mean, I, I hear all kinds of theories about that. And, uh, I mean, I see where they're coming from, definitely, on this, because we know that um, that leftists throughout history, uh, tyrants, or would-be tyrants, have always tried to create or at least capitalize on fear and uh, crises as a, to create a kind of, and, and, and anarchy, uh, to to create a vacuum so they can they can extend their power. Okay, we know that's true. Uh, we've seen it happen over and over again in human history. So I can understand why people are, are very concerned about that. And they see our civil liberties being taken away or curtailed here. We're told temporarily, necessarily, right, for the good of all, just for a time. And um, why can't we see that as not accepted, what I mean to say, not accepted as a positive and a good thing, and oh, thank goodness, you know, this is happening to us, and we're being saved and rescued by the almighty government. No, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that at all. That would not be a good attitude. It wouldn't be a Catholic attitude. But just to say, well, look, I, I've gone to the stores, I see what's happening, the shelves are empty of this, and I see fear on people's faces. I see the schools closed. I see all of this is very troubling. Uh, I have to re reorder my life in many ways. I can't go put the bowling alley and play with the leagues, you know, or the, and so on, whatever it is. But why don't we associate that with what we, something we can do for our Lord instead of just complaining and complaining and complaining about it for, to, to no purpose. We're not making things any better by that. So, if this is a punishment from God, and despite the fact that everything else is kind of a theory, you know, where the virus came from and how it's being used mm -hmm. as, a, as a political tool and all the rest, I mean, that's, that's pretty much theory. But the fact is, it's here, it's now, it's an evil, it's the result of sin. And yes, God has permitted this to happen for a reason, His reason. And we need to accept that. And we might say, oh, we have to fight against it. Our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane, of all, uh, of, of all being divine beings, right, had the right to say no, but he, he did this for, out of obedience to the Father. How much more, and for our salvation, I mean, out of love, right? Love for his Father in heaven, primarily, above all, but out of love for us too. And our Lord has told us, you must take up your cross every day and follow me if you want to be my disciple. So why do we not see a connection between the inconveniences, the troubles, the anxieties, even the trauma we're feeling over this? 
Why can't we incorporate that into our Lent? Instead of just uh, being so irritated about it. I'm not saying that we should surrender our civil liberties happily to anyone. But I'm just saying that if we are called upon to do this, um, then let's at least um, do it for our Lord out of love for Him. Mm-hmm. And Father, I think this could, as you say, kind of be a blessing in disguise. You know, if you see all, all of these, um, all of these things being canceled, all, all of the the sports leagues, the uh, the sports tournaments, and and various things, and it, it seems all, all of these worldly things and all of these worldly yeah, events uh, are being canceled. So why not use that time that we would have invested in those, um, mm-hmm. put that to to a better use, to a more spiritual supernatural purpose. Well, one thing about this pandemic here, you know, it used to be that all this immorality was being splashed around everywhere. And this is pretty well just doused all that, yeah. you know, just doused it right now. Yeah. So all these <clears throat> evil things that they were touting everywhere with all their entertainment and all the, yeah. you know, celebrities and all that. Oof, boy, this has really put that torch out. Yeah. And maybe this is God's purpose there too, you know. So these are things over which we don't really have control. And those are the things especially that we should be willing to bow our heads like our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane and say, Father, not I will, but thy will be done. And to accept gracefully, gracefully out of love for him. And uh, I would like to see us, insofar as we can, uh, not surrender to evil right? that we might see behind this at all, but rather by our humble submission to God's will, fight that evil that way, when we really don't seem to be, have any other means at our disposal to resist it. But that humble acceptance of God's will in this is the greatest weapon we have to resist evil and also to make reparation for the evils of the world. So uh, let's accept this as a means of reparation to God and to cry to him, for not only for deliverance from this evil, but to offer him this also as a matter, our personal inconvenience and, and troubles and hardship as, as in reparation for the sins of mankind, including our own, mm-hmm. perhaps starting with our own. Mm-hmm. And we'll see that there's a lot to be gained from this too, from the spiritual side of things. Father, I think that's a beautiful thought to end on. So thank you for being here tonight. Appreciate your time. Appreciate your your guidance as well through all of this. Well, you're welcome, Tom. I think it's important to get that message across because these times can be very, very troubling to children and they don't know what's happening. It's like the way of life has changed dramatically. And I would like to see, especially the parents, put this in the spiritual light so the children can grow up understanding these things. I think the priest should be putting these things in a spiritual light too so the people in the pews, while they're in the pews, <laughs> right, uh, can begin to think, you know, I have a, a golden opportunity here, um, rather than just, just bristle, um, and mind, and, and not mind the things of man so much as to mind the things of God. St. Patrick did. St. Peter learned to do that. And we have yet to learn to do that too, but this is a prime opportunity we have to learn that. That's right. Thank you, Father. That's certainly done. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima, 
to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.